In this instalment, we look at the notion of community. There's a common idea that rural places have a strong sense of community, and that's what defines them as part of their identity. In some ways, Adrian Pickley talked a little bit about this in his earlier podcast. This week, we want to question that notion and say, is that actually the case? There's a number of articles, a number of research, a number of ideas that suggest that maybe rural communities are actually much more diverse, and maybe they're not as bonded places as some of the theory and research might suggest. Articles like Mike Corbett's Imbuitance of Community, looking at contested notions in this space over time, the rural social space model that we talked to Joe Reed about, the notion that all communities are different and made up of different groups, suggests that there's not one type of bonded or bounded community. Even some work that I've done with my colleague Natalie around conflicting messages or different notions of sustainability in rural communities, where we found that a lot of agricultural enterprises had one particular view of sustainability that was about the future of the community and industry, which might contest with other groups in the community concerned with one particular interpretation of sustainability, be that economic or environmental. Even things like uh, uh, things like Kai Schaaf's work around community development and who gets to be the defining uh, notion of what a community is, or other stuff around the sense of counter-urbanisation, change in rural communities, different notions of social capital and so forth, or even things like the out-of-place notions from identity, which communities may not be open to a range of agendas and identities as we talked about with Danny Stelic. I think the other thing that we come in there when Danny talked about the rural being political, okay, so it's used for some purpose, which means that it's not one singular identity, it's an identity that can be moved from different places and times for different interpretations. So in this module, in this week's podcast, we want to be thinking about what is it that makes a community in rural places what it is. Not just the rural social space model as discussed by Joanne Reed, but what is it that is used to define these terms? How do we know who's included and who's excluded? Is the notion of community as a bonded place actually something that is itself classed, gendered, uh, racialized? That means if you don't fit those characteristics, you're actually on the outer. So this whole romantic notion of rural communities doesn't actually ring true, perhaps. Now, I had the opportunity to talk with Professor Mike Corbett about just this notion, drawing on his paper, The Ambivalence of Community, from 2014. Professor Corbett is a professor of rural education, um, internationally renowned, particularly from his uh, book, Learning to Leave, which is a, a seminal work in rural sociology and rural education. Uh, Mike also worked at UTAS for a while and we had the pleasure of editing an edition of the Australian International Journal of Rural Education with Mike on small schools in Tasmania. This is my conversation with Mike, drawing on these notions of community as contested space rather than as a singular defined notion. Uh, I have with me Professor Mike Corbett from Acadia University in Nova Scotia and Mike was also a Professor of Rural Education at UTAS for a few years before heading back over to Canada. Uh, Mike, welcome. Thanks, Phil. Good to talk with you. Uh, Mike, we've been um, talking to people about their understanding of rurality and mm. issues relating to rural education. And one of your papers particularly sparks a number of, of questions around how we understand community, the ambivalence mm. of community paper. And you, you pick on the, the trope there of community, which is a really important notion of how we uh, have contestable interpretations in this space. What were some of the, the issues that were at mind when you were dealing with that, that issue of, of community in that paper? Mm. I think the 
the key issue that I wanted to, to look at in that paper is the way that people, at least in North America, and I think this, this applies in other contexts as well, um, people who, who study and who theorize and who think about rural education tend to have a, a, a fairly romantic view of community, fairly cohesive view, um, a view of place that's sort of walled off in the sense that rural places are, are distinct and unique and deserve to be protected and um, yeah, are somehow special because they have this, this um, solidarity. I think it, it goes back to the old uh, 19th century sociology of Toynus, who talked about the two modes of association, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. So as societies progress from agricultural to urban industrial, they move from uh, situations where people are essentially living in face-to-face -face worlds and they have this um, kind of special nested sense of solidarity that, that connects to a community that is small and more or less walled off from other places. And then as we move into modernity, uh, Tiny's theorized, we, we get into a different kind of world where we associate differently with one another. And in fact, the term he uses is association as opposed to community. So the, uh, you know, the depth of the, uh, the relationships between people changes and we become kind of fit together in a, in a matrix of um, industrial work relations and, you know, more or less impersonal communities that are, are typically urban, you know, and that's really the story of, of uh, the beginning of sociology, really, at the end of yep. the night in early 20th century. Yep. Okay. That's um, a, a really pertinent issue, isn't it? Because we have that notion of community that we often ascribe to rural communities, but it's a matter of who, who we're speaking to, issues of power, often issues of race and, uh, and economic opportunities that are limited sometimes. So we get a very um, uh, narrow perspective. Yeah, no, no, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think it's really interesting the way that these, are, that's why I called it a trope, you know, these, these old notions kind of hang on. Um, when the world changes in such a way that they no longer actually have any empirical evidence to support them or really any kind of, uh, uh, you know, functional uh, uh, value. We continue to hold on to these ideas, and you know, because we do hold on to them, then they actually continue to to have traction. You know, another kind of early twentieth century European sociologist I like to quote is Florian Zanecki, um, who wrote a study called the, "The Polish Peasant in America," and you know, he, he the direct quote from from that book is situations that are defined as real become real in their consequences. So if you think you live in this kind of uh, cozy, happy little micro-universe where we all look, act, and think the same, uh, we actually begin to enact that and performatively sort of play into that. So, you know, I see this, I just, I'm sitting by a road in rural Nova Scotia right now, and three quarters of the vehicles that go by are, are utes or pickup trucks. You know, it's very Australian. There's no reason why most of the people driving those vehicles have a ute. They do because it's a performative kind of rural um, uh, thing that they do. Um, and, you know, this takes other forms. It takes forms of, of, you know, racial inclusivity and exclusivity that we, you know, the, the people here are 
you know, Anglo-European heritage and, uh, you know, we have certain kinds of values or certain kinds of uh, social and cultural practices that we hang on to not only as our social and cultural practices, but as the correct ones for this place. Yep. And, you know, I find rural people very often take this even to an extreme uh, in this country where they're, they're claiming a kind of indigeneity that they actually belong in the place. So there's an association between these kinds of people, these ways of living, these cultural and social practices with uh, a kind of proper uh, relationship or, or embedded relationship of individuals in place. Yep. And I think that's really getting thrown, you know, torn to pieces these days as, as it well should. Uh, by things like the, you may have heard, we've got a major rail blockade going on right now in Canada where indigenous groups have essentially set down the national uh, transportation system to uh, halt a, a pipeline project. Okay. You know, so there are a number of these things that, that happen um, that, you know, I think illustrate these flashpoints where these notions of community that are, are well established then become um, you know, problematic and, and create tensions and, and uh, um, interesting challenges, I guess. I think we, we see a lot of um, similar issues over here with the uh, identification yeah. in, in politics around who is, who is rural and the use of rural, particularly the word regional more and more in politics over here. Yeah. And identification that's usually linked to um, ownership of land and uh, large agri-enterprises. See the, yeah. the, the marginalisation of Indigenous people in a lot of that, that civic discussion, with the exception of some more remote places, which are then uh, the, where they're, I guess you could say, allowed to identify and uh, and have control of the uh, the civic interactions in those contexts. But even um, in between, I think of a, a project we did um, in the part of the Murray Darling Basin where we had a number of towns, and uh, the people that came forward as community leaders were very much the economic base like the charter of commerce essentially who then had a paternalistic attitude to what you might call the rural working class and then even even more so to the indigenous community which were all separated by where they lived in the community as well but their, their decision making power engagement in things like education was very much structured in a, in a class-based sense but they were the ones who speak to government who um who you know, got put forward towards you to the university researchers or to recognize the community, etc. So, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, you've done a bit of work in, in Australia as well as um, North America. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I was sort of saying, reflecting there that what you said there reflects my experience in Australia. It reflects your experience in working in Australia. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting, Phil, you know, to, to be able to penetrate this at the level, I guess, that, that uh, understand it at the level that I do in Canada, you kind of have to be born in these places, <laughs> almost, you know, to, to actually understand the depth to which people feel this, this connection. And I could feel it in Tasmania, but, you know, coming from a place where you're, my ancestors on one side of my family have been here in this particular geography uh, in Eastern Canada for probably 350, 400 years on the Acadian side. So they came in the um, early to mid 1600s. And on the other side, the Irish part of me came in the early 1800s. So when people have, have that kind of tenure on the land, I think it's, uh, and you're part of that 
kind of little mafia, you know, is sort of what I would call it. You know, you're you're part of a club, a clique that that feels that deep association to place. And it is, you know, I don't dismiss that this is is an important part of identity, you know, the way that, that people will identify with land. Um, and I didn't have quite that kind of sense of, of how that all works in, in, uh, in Tasmania, but you could certainly feel it uh, there, how people in, for example, in the Northwest of Tasmania, were quite resistant to the idea that they, or many of them were quite resistant to the idea that they should engage very much with formal education, that they should uh, kind of spend much time outside their, their areas, and that their kind of concerns around the agriculture in that area and the industrial base um, in uh, northwest Tasmania was the key concern. And I think it caused people to be sort of less able to, to, to see how their lives were enmeshed in larger global flows and how they were part of a, like a, a state even, never mind national and global context that um, really did have a lot to do with um, helping them understand the struggles that they're up against. And educationally, you know, the idea that, that education is, I think as I've written, it's, it's when it's taken seriously, formal education kind of takes you out of place and it moves you into broader spaces so that you reconceptualize geography, I think. Uh, most of us do as yeah. a result of a kind of liberal arts education. So you begin to see your place as one place among many, and you know you you develop a sense of the world and a sense of spatiality that really um, um, confronts a more local sensibility. You know, I think in my own family, you know, my my grandparents and my father and myself, you know, we really saw a different world, although we kind of spent great amounts of time in sort of the same geography so that's sort of uh you talk about modernity earlier so that cosmopolitanism of, uh, and uh, mobility of, of modernity coming through is how we how we understand the world as a result of education and if we stay local then we're uh, we're sort of working or not engaging with that so we it feeds back into that that that, that narrative of the rural being of the past and having a values that are dif distinctly different from today which goes then new identity formations etc yeah, well, I think the opening up is a key problem for rural education. And I think it's one of the problems I have with this notion of place-based education that everybody's so you know, switched on about in the United States rural education community. That, Not just uh, over there, mate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, place-based education is all lovely. John Dewey, you know, everything begins with the experience of the child. And, you know, let's make education relevant for the people in a particular place. Um, but I think we need to take a great deal of care with that idea because uh, I think it can lead to a view of place that really cements that kind of localized uh, insularity. Mm. Um, you know, and I really do see the purpose of education as, as a kind of opening up. So, you know, what, what techniques and what methodologies can we use as educators to help young people get a sense of the world that they actually live in rather than the one that, that uh, their parents and grandparents may imagine they live in. Um, if, that's, if a, that that's a uh, interesting notion isn't it because the world has changed over time so the place may still have characteristics that are that are linked to the experience of the grandparents and the parents but the world yeah. itself has has changed in a sense of uh, i guess a sense of scale the the place is is larger 
than it may have been before, thanks to technology and, and other advances. Well, and also thanks to, uh, you know, the, the kinds of problems that get manufactured by global capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. fossil capitalism, uh, climate change, you know, is an obvious example of that. So here you sit on your little farm and you're, you know, you're seeing certain things, but, you know, in rural Canada, the people who are least likely to get their heads around issues of climate change and most likely to support uh, the sorts of politics that, uh, you know, I would characterize as sticking your head in the sand, you know, and refusing to recognize the challenges that, that we face collectively as a globe. Um, very often, not always, but very often uh, are, are nested in, in rural communities. Um, you know, the other thing about this, and I, I want to go back to the indigenous uh, notion, you know, the, the land that we see, you know, in a sense, bears the scars of social injustice. I mean, the land that we live on, the, the, the way that cities have been constructed, and the way that rural land has been essentially stolen. I mean, let's say, let's call it what it is. It's theft. Um, it is. A, a group of people came in a boat two, three, four hundred years ago and stuck a flag in the ground and said, this is ours. And, you know, 98% of that space is what we call rural. Um, and these habits and these histories uh, that I think, you know, as we uh, Canadian Indigenous scholars say, we need to, to unforget, you know, we've forgotten that this land that we live on in settler societies like Canada, Australia, the United States, Israel, um, New Zealand, were actually um, constituted by acts of violence and acts of theft. Um, and so, you know, these big problems, climate change, decolonialism. Um, the other thing I would mention is, you know, the linguistic monocultures that we're in. You know, these colonial powers, the, the English, the French, the Spanish, and the Portuguese, you know, have spread their language. And that's led to a kind of a whole set of problems that we seldom think about anymore in, in, in rural education. Um, that's, um, I think, you've touched on a number of really big topics that open up so many discussions there, Mike. It's, um, I'm going I'm to respond by going back to the personal bit about um, settler societies and race. You know, my, my interest in the rural being having a family connection and history and that whole sense of, of place being in the western New South Wales where um, I've spent time and had a childhood connection. But exactly mm. as you say, you know, I bear that um that contradiction of uh, and i haven't written any about this as yet but that contradiction of being the, the family on one side who quite literally went out to that area and stuck some pegs in the ground and said right this is us and that was the basis of their ownership and wealth and yeah so one i have that sense of place and connection from that but i then work with the consequences of those actions of which I have a family history as being a direct part of. It's, uh, you know, it, it makes really um, uh, interesting psychological debates one has in how they think about these issues. You know, and certainly uh, something I've gone around in circles with many times. Um, and, they, and the language issue, I think there's really, really important. Um, you know, particularly in Australian, the Australian context, you know, a lot of our indigenous kids we talk English as a third or fourth language but we don't recognize that in government policy. They've got to be instructed 
in English because there was a government perspective on that and didn't, uh, coming from one argument rather than the logical argument of how people learn. But mm. I see then in, in this sort of unit um, where these, these podcasts are embedded, uh, we have a, a, a global cohort of students who are coming from um, a large number from Bhutan, for instance, and other Southeast Asian countries um, where English is the language and competing in the OECD in a globalised world in English is seen as what's important. So, Absolutely. But then who are we here in a developed country to say you need to learn like this and this way when you're denying your own reality, but your own reality is being uh, encouraged to be less in the global world yeah. than China, where you know, I think you have mentioned in China as well, where the whole the English issue as well, it, it's really, it just, we open up the onion skin and keep going, don't we? So... Yeah, I think we do. Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting what you say about your own um, you know, family history. And, you know, I have a very similar family history that also involves the loss of the language. Um, you know, there are only a handful of us in my family in this generation who speak any French. But my mother spoke no English when she was a child. Mm. You know, it's, it, these things are, are tenuous and they're, they're uh, fragile. And it's, it's very easy to lose uh, that diversity, I think. And I think we see this also in the land, you know, in terms of cropping, in terms of, uh, of uh, the fisheries, and in all of the, uh, the work that gets done to feed the population that we have today. Um, and to support the way that that population, the way that those goods are, are distributed in, in a capitalist uh, economy. Um, we really do. Uh, have deeply deep problems associated with this whole idea of rurality and comfort and uh, you know the idea of people and place which I think very much sits at the heart of the whole North American rural education enterprise you know essentially and maybe I'd be interested in your comments on this in the Australian context um, the rural education movement is virtually all white. Um, there are a few uh, African-American scholars who engage in. Uh, in my country of Canada, the only people who would define as themselves as rural education academics or theorists would be, uh, you know, settler colonial people. Um, and we're only beginning the conversation that you've been carrying on for a little while in, in uh, Australia, you know, connecting indigenous issues to, uh, to rural issues. So, you know, this notion of community, um, you know, has all the trappings of this is our place and we deserve to be here and damn it, um, you know, we'll fight to the death to make sure that there, no indigenous group can, can challenge us or that there's no, um, you know, we, we don't accept immigrants, you know, that kind of thing that we're hearing in, in rural Canada. That's, um, yeah, we certainly have that in the, the political movement with um, some of the more recent or not so recent political movements. I'm thinking here like the sort of the Pauline Hanson type movement, et cetera, around um, you know, saying this is our land and we've been here too. You know, and uh, mm. even even using even with those uh, those type of politics, using the word indigenous to describe themselves, which mm -hmm. uh, you know, has a particular politics in Australia, as you would uh, know from that experience. Um, but I think, yeah, 
in terms of the scholars, that's something I've um, been been playing with for a little while, um, trying to work, work work through, and uh, some analysis that we've been doing, which we'll finish shortly with um, a colleague Natalie, who you who you know, uh, and what sort of sense of it is. On one respect, I would characterise the field in Australia as being largely um, based around the preparation of teachers. Um, right. So not so much the broader sociologies of, of knowledge or, um, or community. That sort of is a very small rural studies, rural geography, rural sociology group that play with some of those issues. But in terms of rural education, it seems to be really focused on preparation of teachers in my perspective. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people um, have some rural heritage. Uh, not not all. Some have developed a different affinity for place, but I think the vast majority have some rural heritage, and in some respects, um, uh, probably uh, informed by that romantic notion of, of their own past, perhaps, um, which I think you might see in the way that some of the studies come about. Because I think that that notion of of past and influences the way that we go about re- researching it. Yeah, I think that's an issue. I think the indigenous one is 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 the big one, um, and I noticed you made a comment on that in the uh, preface of the book, your book that came out recently, on mm. um, rural education uh, research in, in Canada. Yeah, um, and that that's a real that's a real vexed one because we John Gunther did an article recently where he did a systematic review around rural education and indigenous, and basically found that the two are pretty much synonymous. So when people are talking rural and indigenous or they're talking um, indigenous schools or indigenous communities. So there's this sort of delimitation that happens. Um, I was part of that bit of work and I was looking at rural and indigenous and we found hardly any articles where rural education scholars have talked about indigenous. So yeah. it's like indigenous is left to remote and rural is, is not described but is essentially, as you say, um, white. Having said that, we do have a number of migrant resettler societies and communities that are working really well in rural communities, but it's yeah. not it's not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in our context. So there's a definite um, uh, thing going on, and I don't necessarily think it's a very uh, productive thing, and that's something I think uh, rural education researchers really need to work at, um, yeah. is engaging with Indigenous specifically as, as opposed to engaging with Indigenous as remote. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned teacher ed as being a, a central pillar in, in the way rural ed gets thought about and the way it plays out in research. I think you're, you're right. The same would be true in North America. The other thing that, that I would add, at least in the North American context, is that rural education tends to be an activist discipline. So it, it's prosecuted. It's, the research is carried out by people who... Um, working communities and they may be members of those communities or they may be sort of hired guns who come in to uh, to uh, involve themselves in one form or another defensive struggle and very often it's the defense of a school that's uh, about to be closed but it can also be you know community-based uh, defenses around how do we keep something from happening and that's something mm-hmm. As I say, it can be the loss of services, uh, government retreating from the place because of population decline, uh, or it can also be um, um, defensiveness about a form of development that people aren't comfortable with. Um, for example, um, you know, a, 
a mining operation or you know, a new way of a, a tourist development, uh, gentrification of, of the land. You know, the place I live here is very interesting. You know, it's got a number of older fishing families that are, are Anglo-European. Uh, of German descent, actually, because Germans were brought in here after they they did a, an ethnic cleansing of the Acadian people in the 1750s. Uh, so you've got a population, a German population, German descended population, that's been here for uh, 250 years or whatever. Yeah, I guess it is 250 years. Um, so they're still here. They mostly are fishing people. But then you've got this, you know, it's a beautiful seascape here. So there have been a whole whack of new places built, mostly by wealthy Americans and wealthy people from central Canada who come out here and live in mansions for two or three months of the year. Um, so this, you know, it's really fascinating, you know, what's mm. happening. And they close off the seascape for everyone else. Absolutely, it's like a new new enclosure movement. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, there there were there were a number of, of uh, pitch battles this summer about you know walking trails that um, the wealthy folks who paid boatloads of money to buy the land are claiming you know they they want to close the trails um, and they figure they have the right. And so the legal battles and, and the community struggles uh, carry on. So, yeah, I mean, all sorts of interesting dimensions to this. I think we, we sort of have come full circle there, haven't we? Because that's now a notion of, well, who is in power in the community? Who is the community? And yep. There's new, newcomers. We have similar communities on the coast in Australia where that happens, where uh, new, newcomers using the laws of perhaps other locations that were designed for other situations but then yeah. are used to, to gain a position of authority or a position of, um, of power. And the whole yeah. community debate of well, who, who has a say is back in the circle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Zygmunt Baldwin's quite right. You know, we start to talk the, uh, we, the language of community at the point at which community actually has, has fizzled out. Yeah. And so then it becomes an activist weapon. You yeah. know, we talk about community as, as something that needs to be defended against some kind of uh, external force. Yeah, it does indeed. Um, Mike, we, we've, um, we've gone full circle there and opened up a whole number of issues around uh, community as not being such a simple term after all. Um, mm. I'm sure we could, we could talk on many topics in the rural, but for this instance, um, I'll, I'll thank you for your, your time this afternoon in Nova Scotia, this, this morning in Australia. My pleasure, Phil.